You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, everyone. My name is Colin, and I'll be reading the scripture today. Uh, today's scripture reading is on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 to 26. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you so much, Colin. Hello, everybody. It's uh, lovely to see you on uh, this Sunday. Even you, Lynn, smiling at me. Great to see you all. Okay, so we are continuing on our uh, series. This is part three of four called The Gospel Made Visible. The Gospel Made Visible. And uh, we have been looking at how the gospel has been made visible in the church. That is part one. How the gospel is made visible in baptism. That's part two. And so, so excited to see uh, Deborah and Zoe getting baptized uh, uh, this coming Sunday. So there the gospel will be made visible in a very definitive form. And then today and next week, we're looking at how the gospel is made visible in communion, how the gospel is made visible in communion. I've got two simple points today. Point number one is that uh, communion is all about unity. Communion is all about unity. And then point number two is that communion makes the gospel tangible. Communion is all about unity, point number one. And then point number two, communion makes the gospel tangible. But before we get into uh, our points, or as a way of introduction, I want to tell you what I did on Thursday night, which was uh, go to a fundraiser for a charity called Dayspring. Now, some of the ladies who run this Dayspring organization, some of the founders, uh, come to ECP from time to time. They attend here. So I went along to support them. It's the most wonderful charity. They help uh, young ladies who've been abused in various forms. And uh, it's just this most fantastic program. And at this fundraiser on Thursday night, they were auctioning off a whole lot of stuff. 
for example, some whiskey and uh, uh, this thing and that thing. And uh, on this, uh, they got this Australian gentleman. Uh, we've got nothing against Australians, of course. We love them. This Australian gentleman who was the uh, auctioneer. And uh, he was auctioning off these things and people were, you know, going for it. And uh, this one particular bottle of whiskey was up for auction, and uh, he started off like this. He said, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we're starting here $1,000 for this uh, bottle of single malt. And uh, yes, I see $1,000, 1250 1250 Yes, I see $1,250, 1500 1500 Anyone coming with me? 1500 1500 Yes, I see 1500 Thank you. 1750 1750 1750 Come with me. Come with me. Welcome back. Yes, 1750 2000 2000 At this point, another ECP across the hall caught my eye, who I hadn't seen. And she waved at me. Now, now, the beating pastor's heart, the beating pastor's heart dictates, when wave to, when waved upon, thou must wave back. And so I wave back. And the next thing I hear is, thank you, sir, $2,000. And then everything just went very cold and very slow. And then my wife looked at me and went, what? And I said, relax, relax, I'm doing my bit for charity, I say, sweating. Just driving up the auction price, I say. $2,000, $2,000, do I have anyone else? $2,000. Yes, thank you, sir, 2250. And everyone breathe a great sigh of relief. <laughs> but the real item on, uh, up for auction was a meal, and I'm just going to read it here because I, I can't remember this, and my culinary knowledge is poor at the best of times. An item like this, so put yourself in my shoes, how much would you bid for this? A four-hands private dining experience at Kapow Restaurant for 12 people, 12 packs, with Chef Aaron and Chief Patisserie Jeanette Orr. Be wowed by a very exclusive dining experience led by an award-winning chef owner, Aaron, at a highly sought-after reservations, only 12-seater restaurant. This 10-course omakase menu at Kapow is a feast for the senses, a showcase of fresh seasonal ingredients prepared with time-honored Japanese techniques. In a special collaboration for this event, Jeanette Orr, celebrity actress and patisserie of Once Upon a Time Bakery, will be incorporating her famous dessert creations into this private dining experience. How much would you auction for that? It went for about thirteen or 14000 I lost count. Imagine it, a room, private dining, 12 people, this incredible chef. If you're into Japanese, this is the thing you should go for. So I want you to, uh, are you hungry yet? <laughs> are you thinking about lunch yet? So I want you to think of that experience. Think of the delight. Think of being in a room together with friends. And imagine you won this at the, at the auction, and you can invite 11 others to come along. Imagine the unity in that room. Imagine the bonding. Imagine the joy and the fun. Well, I want you to keep that picture in mind as we go through this text today, and I'll return to that idea in a moment. Because our first point, as you remember, is communion is all about unity. Communion is all about unity. So, read with me here in verse 17, where it says, But in the following instructions... I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, three times in this passage, he will talk about when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. 
It's not if you come together, but it's when you come together. And this is a subtle but profound point. The Bible assumes that Christians come together. When you come together, the presumption is that Christians gather together. He will use the word church in verse, uh, the next verse, verse 18. When you come together as a church, as an ecclesia, as an assembly, as an assembled group of people in formation, as it were. When you come together, there's a presumption that Christians gather together. When you come together, he says, I've got no praise for you because your services, your gatherings together. Other translations put it like this. They do more harm than good. They do more harm than good. It's not for the better, it's for the worse. They do more harm than good. There's a quality control going on here. There is an evaluation of how church services are conducted. In your particular case, it's better that you didn't have it at all, because it does more harm than good. It's for the worse, not for the better. It's for the worse, not for the better. The tone is serious. The tone is getting their attention. But the presumption is that you should come together. You must come together. Uh, his remedy is not, oh, because you're doing it badly, stop gathering together. No, he goes on to say, when you come together, I want you to do it like this and this and this and not like you have been doing it. And so that's what we're looking at today. What not to do and then how to do it. Don't do it like them is the message. And then in verse 18 he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. And so what was going on in this church when they were gathering together Wherever they gathered, this is the church in Corinth, probably in a large house, probably in a hall somewhere. They would have a meal. They would celebrate the Lord's Supper, or so they thought, together. But as a church, they were actually divided. And this manifested itself especially so when they were doing communion, when it came to communion, when it came to enjoying the Lord's Supper. These divisions manifested. And this makes the point that when you do communion, it's an act of unity. Don't be divided as a people. Come together. Come together and enjoy communion together. Don't let there be divisions in your midst. We're going to look at some of the divisions in a moment. Basically under two broad headings, they were divided over economic lines and they were divided over spiritual quality lines, can I say. There were some first-class Christians and some second-class Christians, and they seemed to divide themselves like that. And then there were some rich Christians and some poor Christians, and they seemed to divide themselves like that as well. No, the big message is Christianity means you are unified with Christ. And we looked at that extensively last week. You are in Him. You are so unified with Him, you are inside Him. You are in Him. That's unity. And so the whole nature of Christianity is is incredible unity with God. And so when you come to celebrate or reenact Jesus dying and rising again, this union that we have with Him, it is absolutely consistent that you should be unified with each other. The differences we have 
person to person, for example, in this hall, are so negligible compared with the difference we have between me and God. He's in a whole other category. He is completely other. He is holy. He is set apart. And that chasm, that gulf has been bridged by Christ, that I can be unified with him. It's completely illogical and inconsistent if I should then have differences of far greater negligible basis with another person who is in Christ. If I'm in Christ, I'm united with those who are in Christ as well. Everything about communion is about unity with God. And Jesus comes with the body. Jesus has a body. I am in his body. And when I celebrate communion, which is a celebration of the body which was broken, and other people, you all are in the body with me, we need to keep our unity. And so communion is a huge thing for the church because when we gather, it's a moment in time to make sure that we don't have any divisions among us. At least not on economic lines and at least not along first class, second class Christian lines which is what this text is in particular, the context at Corinth was that they were struggling with that. But let me push the envelope a little more. It follows that if we have division between each other relationally, if there's relational disunity between people, coming to communion is a moment for us to pause and to reflect and to think about that. And so communion is the celebration of unity. It's also a moment in time when we can adjust our relationships, at least in our hearts, to make sure we are united with each other. Uh, the church is not like an SQ flight. We have first class, business, and then the rest. We have these divisions, and uh, the first class get a special meal with a special Dom Perignon or whatever it is. Never been there, but I imagine. Uh, and then business and, and cattle class. That's not the church of Jesus. The church of Jesus, as it were, is we're all in first class because we're all treated as if we are Christ because we are in him. Verse 19 is an interesting verse. He goes on and he says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. Now, he's being ironic here. So don't quote this and say, well, the Bible says there must be factions among you. That's what it literally says. But he's being ironic. He's saying, well, obviously, if your mindset is who is more genuine than others, who is the better Christian than others, who is more recognized than others, obviously, you'll have factions. If that's the way you think. Other versions or translations put it like this, to the words, to the effect of, it's understandable that you have factions because you're trying to figure out and work out who of you is approved by God and who of you isn't. And isn't this so true in Christianity? We have this first class Christian and second class Christian, and the first classes look down on the second classes, and we are better than you in the church because you do ABC. No, there are no factions in the church. We're all together. You see, when people get a deficit of love from God, when they're in deficit, when they are not full up with the love of Jesus, with the love of God in Christ, when they don't feel that they are approved by God, which they are if you're in Christ, when you're operating out of deficit, the natural temptation is to try and make yourself superior to someone else. 
as you're feeling your deficit and you're not full up with the love of God in Christ, you're in this position of inferiority, the natural tendency, experience has shown, is to try and make yourself superior to someone else in the church, to build yourself up, to prove yourself more genuine, a better Christian as it were, so that you might feel like you are more approved than someone else. That's the wrong way to think, he's saying. And so here we see in this church, reading between the lines, they were factionalized along lines of better Christians and worse Christians. And he's saying that's the wrong way to come to the communion table. That's the wrong way to understand Christianity. No, in Christ, all of us are at zero. We're all sinners. We all desperately need him. We contribute nothing. In fact, our qualification is to recognize that we are disqualified. And we put aside whatever merit we might bring, and we stand with nothing to receive the everything of Jesus without trying to be something. We're at zero. And we get the everything of God in Christ. And that's our commonality, is how we enter is at nothing, that we get everything. And together, that's what unites us. But as soon as we start comparing who's the better, we're going to create factions. That's not the way the church should run, he is saying. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Well, that's a scary thought. The people in Corinth were coming to church week after week, going through the motions of doing the Lord's Supper and communion, and God turns around and says, oh, that thing that you were doing, that's not communion. It's got all the trappings and the shape, and it looks like it, but it's not actually it. It's not actually it. That is a scary thought for God to confront you and to say, no, what you're doing here is not something I recognize. It's something completely else. So let's scratch a little deeper. What was it? In verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another goes, gets drunk. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And so instead of having... Again, this is the context in Corinth here. Instead of everyone coming together and enjoying the Lord's Supper together, enjoying the meal together where Jesus' death and resurrection is celebrated, it seems like people were bringing their own meal, their own communion starter kit. And the rich who had the means were bringing these lavish meals. And then the rich were congregating with the rich. And those who were genuine poor... Some were going hungry, so some didn't have the means to actually bring anything. And so if you've got nothing, it's a little embarrassing to go and join the cool crowd. You've got this great meal going off there in the corner, with, you know, the fancy silverware and goblets and so on. I'm just imagining it. And you've got nothing, and then you're like, uh, I'm, you know, I'm really broke. I've got nothing to really contribute. Is it okay if I have some of your food? I mean, that's a really embarrassing thing to ask. And so they would then sort of cluster the people with no food. And, and so it was completely divisive, completely dis divisive. And it seems to be in plain sight of each other. So some were going hungry. And then to add insult to injury, those with the means were getting drunk. By the way, a quick word on sustenance. There are two reasons you're getting drunk. Either you are celebrating yourself or you are trying to escape from your plight or your difficulties in life. Either way, you're not standing on Christ. Either way, you're either trusting in yourself, celebrating yourself, or you're trying to escape without reference to Christ, getting your identity and your strength and your security from Him. 
So that seems to be going on here as well. Even when they were going through the motions of communion, they were abusing the communion wine, getting drunk on it, trying to either escape or self-rejoice in their own skill and status. So there's really terrible things going on here. And then in verse 22, and you've got to hear the tone here, he says this, what? It's like, what is going on here? I mean, he's kind of shouting. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Wow, that's a strong word. You're despising God's church. I mean, you're despising the church that Jesus brought, bought with his blood. And you are humiliating those who have nothing. You are humiliating. You are embarrassing other people in your midst. Those who have lesser means. You're embarrassing them. You are humiliating them. And that's an act of despising them. There's a deep division. And it's ironically, tragically, in this act or this moment of communion is what he's saying. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And that's a firm and swift rebuke from Paul. I'm told often at uh, Chinese New Year meals... Uh, there are people who show off their wealth and people who arrive at those functions without uh, too much status or a better good job or enough money, whatever the trappings may be, can feel humiliated and embarrassed. I've heard at some of these occasions, and this is just true across all cultures, often when families gather together, there's often more divisions than otherwise. This, this is not... That's not the picture of how the church works. The picture of how the church works is that we're all in it together. We all stand at the foot of the cross, equal, bonded, united. And if we've got differences with each other, if there are arguments or quarrels amongst brothers and sisters in the church, then we should settle them as we come before the communion table. At least do the business in our heart of not wanting to be divided in any way. It's a... Stern word this morning about unity, particularly in the moment of communion. Okay, point number two is communion makes the gospel tangible. Communion makes the gospel tangible. Now, I want to put this passage in context because he's not just talking about communion for the first time in chapter 11. He's writing a letter to the Corinthians. It's not his first letter. It's the first letter in the Bible to the Corinthians. He's had there's numerous correspondence flying back and forth. We've only got this one, which is one way, but he's spoken about communion in chapter 10 before. So if we could just flash up verse 16 of chapter 10, and he tells us what communion is, and you might recognize some of these terms. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, talking about communion, the cup of communion, he calls it the cup of blessing, ESV, or the cup of thanksgiving. The Greek word is Eucharist. So you may have heard of Eucharist. So this is where we get the word from, the cup of thanksgiving. So it's a, it's a moment of, the Eucharist means thanksgiving. So we come with thanksgiving, thanksgiving for what Jesus has done. He goes on and he says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This word participation, the Greek word is koinonia, koinonia, 
which means some kind of partnership or sharing, or it can also mean, and there's certainly a sense of this, spiritual fellowship. Spiritual fellowship. It's Eucharist, it's Thanksgiving, and it's communion because it's koinonia. There's spiritual fellowship. And so when you come to communion, he's already set them up in chapter 10 to say, when you're coming to the cup and to the bread, you're coming to have spiritual fellowship with Christ himself. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You're coming to enjoy, to participate with Jesus himself, which is why in verse 20 of chapter 11, going back to chapter 11, it calls it the Lord's Supper. And the sense is the Lord is hosting the supper. The Lord is hosting the supper. And the meal is himself. And the meal will be distributed by his body. The meal is his body, distributed by his body. But when you're coming, you're coming with thanksgiving to have quinonia, to have spiritual fellowship with the Lord himself. Who's the host of this occasion? It's Jesus himself. Do you remember Jesus himself says, where two or more are gathered, there am I in the midst of you. When the church gathers, there he is. Do you know that Jesus is with us now? And when we have the Lord's Supper, it's not the Elder's Supper or ECP's Supper. It's Jesus' Supper. That he's feeding us. That he is the host. And we are having fellowship, spiritual koinonia with him. And we're having spiritual fellowship with each other as well. And we are participating in the blood and in the body of Christ. It's quite profound. Jesus is the host. And so that's why I began with this incredible picture of 12 people in a private dining. Omakasi, 10 courses. I'm not really into fish myself, but you might be. This incredible unity in this, in this room with the celebrity chef and this other celebrity chef. This amazing meal hosted, thrown for you. Well, times that by infinity, and you get the Lord's Supper, where Jesus himself is hosting all of us to a meal that we might remember him and who he is. Christ is the host. I want to uh, build on this point in a, for a moment and uh, tell you a quick story about a pastor friend of mine in South Africa. Can okay, I bear in mind this is culturally appropriate, okay? Culturally appropriate. In South Africa, there was this uh, widower who'd lost her husband many, many years. She was quite lonely. She started coming to my friend's church. And on Monday after Sunday, he bumps into her in the supermarket. He came up behind her in the aisle, in the supermarket aisle. You saw her. She just started coming to the church. And he came up to her and said, hello. And then he gave her a big hug. Okay, culturally appropriate in uh, South Africa, right? And she started weeping. And he said, what have I done wrong? And she said, you've done nothing wrong. It's just that no one has hugged me in seven years. Sometimes you just need a touch or contact. And many Christians feel like God has just abandoned them or he's gone away or he's on assignment in New York. He's not here in Singapore. Certainly not. If he is, he's not in my home when I pray. Got no contact with him. If only God would give me a hug, sort of thinking. 
Well, communion, if the Lord is hosting us, and if going back to verse 19, if we are so desperate for recognition, communion is a way where Christ is coming, presencing himself in our midst, hosting a meal, and recognizing us. And it's, it's not like Jesus is the wafer or the element or the, the juice or the wine. I'm not saying that he is those things. But those are symbols of him administered by his body, where in a real way it's an acknowledgement from Christ to you. I see you. I know you. And I want you to have some tangible, tactile, corporeal thing that you can touch and feel, which symbolizes that I am with you. A deep human need is to be recognized. Communion is a way that the Lord is recognizing you. And he's going to do it through his body, which is why it's so important that there's unity in the room when this sort of thing starts happening. So uh, let me read you some psychology about the importance of being recognized. The importance of being recognized, which... As I say, is Jesus in the church, in the room, recognizing us and giving us something physical that we can touch and feel so that we feel recognized or acknowledged by the Lord of all creation. And uh, this is a, a psychologist called Eric Burney, and he has some thoughts about Burney's theories. He writes this that's written about Burney. Burney defined the fundamental unit of social action, the fundamental unit of social action, of society as a unit of recognition. When one person recognizes another person, either verbally or non-verbally. Bernie introduced this idea based upon the work of Rene Spitz. Spitz was a researcher who did pioneering work in the area of child development. Spitz observed that infants deprived of handling, so little babies if they're not touched when they're small, in other words, not receiving any recognition, who are more prone to emotional and physical difficulties down the line. These infants lacked the cuddling, touching, and handling that most other infants received. Bernie took Spitz's observation of these infants and developed theories about the needs of adults for recognition. Bernie postulated that adults need physical contact just like infants, but have learned to substitute other types of recognition instead of physical stimulation. So while an infant needs cuddling, an adult craves a smile, a wink, a hand gesture, or other form of recognition. People have a basic need for recognition or attention from others. Individuals seek this to feel validated, acknowledged, and connected with others. Bernie defined this under the term recognition hunger. Recognition hunger. Every one of us has a hunger to be recognized, not only by each other, but by God himself. And if the Lord is hosting the Lord's Supper, he is recognizing us. He is presencing himself with us, and he is looking at us, speaking to us, and giving us something physical that we can feel the touch from him. This is why it's a beautiful thing, the Lord's Supper. Okay, well, what exactly is it? Let's read together all of these verses uh, in verse 11, sorry, chapter 11, verse 23 to, to 26, where he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, 
He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a ceremony of remembering. It's of remembrance. And so I'm going to give you four things that are remembered when we enjoy communion together in unity, feeling the Lord recognize us as he hosts the Lord's Supper. The first thing to recognize is that we betray him. Because it says in verse 23, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. The context for communion is betrayal. Originally, and uh, you might be exploring the Christian faith and not know this, the original Lord's Supper was a few hours before Jesus Christ was put to death for the sins of the world. And in this room with his friends, one of them betrayed him. One of them turned him into the authorities. The context of us coming to the Lord's table is that there's some treachery in our own hearts. We are not faithful and loyal to Him as we should be. There's betrayal in the room. But we just got to be honest about that and remember that, that we come as sinners. But He has the amazing thing. What else we're going to remember is that we come as forgiven sinners. But let us be aware of who we are. You need to remember, uh, it wasn't just Judas, as it were. It was also me who has betrayed Jesus over and over and over again. The context for receiving the Lord's Supper is we come as those who betray Him and have betrayed Him. We come dirty. We come with our sin. That's the invitation to sinners is to come to His table to remember and be reminded that your sins have been done away with by Jesus Christ, with the breaking of His body. And so the second thing you must remember is that his body was broken for you. When he was betrayed, verse 23, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a lot going on there. If the if the bread at the table is a picture of the body of Jesus, why did he give thanks? If you, were, you knew you were going to suffer capital punishment in a few hours, would you give thanks? Well, he gives thanks to the Father that he's going to be resurrected, that he's going to save the sins of the world. There's so much actually to be thankful for. And then it says that he broke it. It's the sign that Jesus went willingly and sacrificially to the cross. He gives thanks and then he demonstrates, I'm willingly going to the cross for you to be broken because you have betrayed me. I'm willingly going to be broken and I'm giving thanks that it's going to save you of your sins. You need to remember that Jesus Christ willingly with thanksgiving, gave his body to save you for your sins. That's the second thing you need to remember. The third thing you need to remember is in verse 24, where he says, this is my body, which is for you. It's a gift. Remember you've betrayed him. Remember that he has willingly given his body for you. 
And remember number three, that he has gifted to you salvation, eternity, absolution from your sins, inclusion into him. It's a gift. Remember that it's a gift. The fourth thing you need to remember is that it's the blood of the covenant, verse 25. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's the cup of the covenant. It's the cup of his blood. And let me briefly explain this because this is a big idea to understand. A covenant is something irreversible, irrevocable that you cannot ever break. If you are in covenant with God, he's got you firm forever, for eternity. But here's the difficulty, is that you and I both know that we often break the covenant with God, if it was all up to us, right? And so Jesus formed a covenant with God himself. Jesus covenants with God. And if you are in Jesus, you get the benefit of the obedience and the sacrifice of Jesus. And if you want Jesus, if you want to be in him, he's inviting to be in you. You're in him. That was last week's sermon. But here is a picture of Christ being in you. This is the cup of, in my blood of the covenant. If you want to be in me as I make a covenant with the Father for the forgiveness of your sins, then receive it and drink me. And as we drink the wine, as we drink and receive the blood symbolically of Christ, it's as if Christ is in us because we are in him. And we are in this covenant which can hold us for all eternity. Remember that, says Paul, whenever you come together in unity. And then to wrap it all up in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The mere fact of you eating this and enjoying it and drinking the cup, remembering the body, remembering the blood, that in and of itself is a proclamation of the gospel. That Jesus Christ had his body broken and his blood shed to save sinners. And just the church doing this in unity is the gospel made visible. It's made tangible as Christ hosts us with physical elements. But it's made visible. It's explained. It's spoken. It's demonstrated. It's declared to all and sundry in the moment of uh, taking communion. Amen. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Won't you... uh, Join with me as we uh, pray for a moment. In a short time, we will be enjoying communion together. But as we just think and pause on these words of Jesus being with us now, Christ hosting us at this supper of his, these incredible remembrances, the warnings against disunity. Won't you just search your own heart for ways that uh, you have let him down, your own treacheries or betrayals? If there are disharmonies in, uh, in your heart, with others in this room, or maybe not even in this room, in this body, 
Why don't you just lean into unity this morning? Why don't you lean into the incredible unity we have in Christ and therefore the incredible unity we have with each other? Let's just prepare our hearts. If you don't have a communion pack, you can just wave a hand. Let's focus on the Lord Jesus, whose body was broken for you. He's here. He's with us. Perhaps when I was speaking about being recognized, you realize you've factionalized because you've wanted the recognition of God and never got it. Or don't feel you've got it, at least. So you've gossiped, you've slandered, you've caused disharmony and disunity. Well, in communion, the Lord recognizes you. The Lord recognizes you. He doesn't want you to feel unnoticed, disregarded. He's here. He's with us right now to love you, to hold you, to give you a spiritual embrace, to reaffirm you of his great love for you, he wants you to remember that you're saved, that He loves you. If you are someone who hasn't yet put his or her faith in Christ, communion is not for you at this moment. It's a remembrance of the day and the moment we entered the kingdom where we put our faith in Christ and repented of our sins and put our faith in His work on the cross, rising from the dead. If you aren't yet in the kingdom of Jesus, won't you receive him today? He loves you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to save you from your sin. He wants you to repent, to recognize your utter disqualification. That is the beginning of him receiving you. And then put your faith in the fact that his body was broken for you. For those, those of us already in him, this is, a, this is a meal of great celebration. Unified with each other, we remember the body and the blood, broken and poured. Won't you just take hold of this idea that you are in covenant with God, on the basis of what Christ has done. Won't you feel his love, his acceptance, his recognition of you, his approval of you as a person, his big heart for you? On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. ECP, won't you remember the body of Jesus broken for you? By taking and enjoying this wafer. In the same way, he also took the cup 
saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. ECP, won't you do this in remembrance of Jesus? Just, uh, we don't have to rush. Why don't you just keep your eyes uh, closed? I'd love us to pray together for a moment. This church was planted and established with the purpose of reaching lost souls in Singapore, the good news of Jesus. As we've engaged in such an intense way this morning with this incredible picture of the body of Christ being broken on the cross, the blood being, being spilled, can I ask you with faith to pray for this city, Singapore? I'll lead us in praying, but can I ask you in the depths of your being, in the depths of your heart, to ask God to help us to speak His message, His gospel? And can we, with the united sense of faith, ask Him for help as we take His gospel forth? Ask Him to bring people to us that we can preach this word. Ask Him to take us to people that we can bring explanation and understanding of what Jesus has done. So you just pray silently in your hearts as I lead us in a prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning. We pray for the success of your mission that you've entrusted us with. You have asked us to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. We pray you'd help us, Lord, as ECPers, as we go out into the city tomorrow, Monday through Saturday. Would you help us to stand for you, to live for you, to work for you, to do our families for you? And would you help us to have an eye for those who are lost, for those who don't yet know your saving work, for those who are not in your kingdom. Lord, would you give us words to say? Would you give us opportunities? Would you send the lost our way, Lord? Would you give us moments? Would you give us coincidences? Would you give us bumpins? Would you give us a great confluence of factors, Lord? Would you put the gospel on our lips that when we see people that comes tripping off our tongues, we live to explain you, Lord as we offer this salvation on your behalf to a hurting, broken, bleeding city full of sin and full of wickedness and not knowing what, what is going on, stumbling around without you, lost in darkness. Lord, would you give us success in the mission to reach many, Lord. We ask for your help, Lord. We ask for your boldness. We ask for your courage. If it's family members that you're putting on our heart, if it's colleagues, if it's office workers or old friends or school friends or... Whoever it might be, would you call to mind, would, Holy Spirit, would you bring faces and names to our minds now? Would you prepare the way, Lord, as we anticipate bumping into people this week, as we anticipate conversations opening up? Would you give us strength if you want us to reach out and make a call or send a message or make a coffee appointment or a lunch or a dinner or an invite into our home, Lord? Would you help us, O oh God, to take your message and your gospel? into the city of yours. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.